I'm delighted to uh, uh, interact with the viewers of Sangam Talks. Uh, you know, it's, it's my privilege. And let me share a few things about myself and, uh, and then we'll get on the topic. Yeah, so I am a distinguished teaching professor at the uh, you know, State University of New York. And uh, uh, Oswego is uh, on the northern part of New York State. Uh, and uh, it's a beautiful site, as you can see, this is my university. Uh, and the beauty of this place is uh, that 22% of the whole world's drinking water, 22% is right in my backyard. So, I mean, uh, we are very, very lucky. Uh, and uh, I have some affinity perhaps with water because in India, I grew up in the holy city Haridwar. Another place uh, famous for water, Ganges River. And that's where I grew up. And whatever I have achieved in my career, I attribute to uh, my upbringing in that city. Let me talk a little bit about, you know, what I have done. Uh, and I have published these four books, uh, Science in the Medieval World, Sciences of the Ancient Hindus, The History of Science and World Cultures, and uh, Ancient Hindu Science. If you see it here, uh, you see more than three books. And the reason is uh, my book, Ancient Hindu Science, it is published from Jaco from India. It is uh, published from Morgan and Claypool from America and uh, from Springer in uh, Switzerland. So uh, it is published in three different uh, continents and uh, that's the reason you see more uh, uh, images there. Uh, I'm going to be focusing on uh, ancient Hindu science. Let me share uh, the uh, GDP of India uh, from the uh, you know uh, beginning of the Christian era. When the Christian era started in year one, and it is published from a book by Angus Madison, who is a a uh, British economist, Indian GDP was 32% of the whole world's GDP, means the one third of GDP was Indian. In year 1000, it was 28%, in year 1500, 24%, and so on. And then comes 1820. That's where the British influence started. And by 1913, it became only 7.5%. Sad, in year 2003, only 5.5%. And uh, now it is going up because in 2021, 
it was 7.2%. And uh, right now, we have just superseded France and uh, United Kingdom. So we are the fifth largest economy right now. Uh, and that's a, uh, you know, uh, credit to the Indians, you know. Now, India, it has 2.4% of the surface area. And we have 16.7% of the world population. So you know that uh, population density in India is high. Uh, it is a big asset and a big problem. So uh, depending on whose point of view you are looking at, uh, this is how it is. And it has always been population, you know, was always, you know, very high in India. Now, let me talk uh, in year 2000, American advancement, triple uh, AS, um, American Association for the Advancement of Science. They decided that they should document the top 100 uh, major uh, contributions to science uh, in human history. And 98% came from Europe. Only 2% means only two contributions came from the non-Western world. One was the invention of zero, which was credited to India. And second was the astronomical observation of the Hindus and the Mayas. And there was no uh, mention of China, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East. Now, just think about it. Here, we are documenting the top 100 contributions. And Hindu astronomy, by the way, the term Hindu, it is not used by me, so don't get angry with me. It is the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which is the largest scientific body in the world. So they have used the term Hindu. Now, I'm pretty sure some of the viewers here, they must have studied astronomy. Were they taught about Hindu astronomy? Perhaps not. And that tells us the education we are imparting to our young generation, it is highly incomplete. Because if the Hindu astronomy is good enough to be among the top 100 contributions in human his history, why are we not teaching uh, about it in uh, uh, astronomy 100 courses anywhere in the world. So basically that tells, I mean, that shows that the education we are sharing, it is highly incomplete. We are teaching things selectively. Now, let me uh, talk a little bit about Syed El Andalusi. I'm talking about the Islamic Spain um, almost a thousand years ago. 
he was a muslim he was a qadi in india we say qaji means the person whose job is to implement sharia laws in civil matters so uh, all the issues are resolved based on sharia he was a very good scientist and he decided that he is going to compile a history of the uh, global history of science uh, and that is by the way the very first attempt to my knowledge and that book which he wrote in arabic uh, was tabaqat al umam category of nations and he decided that he is going to rank uh, nations based on their contribution to science so let's see where india was in that uh, uh, ranking now this is what he wrote the first nation to have cultivated science is hind this is a powerful nation having a large population as a and a rich kingdom hind is known for the wisdom of its people over many centuries all the kings of the past have recognized the ability of the hindus in all branches of knowledge now so said al andalusi ranked hind which means india in today's uh, term number 1 in science and technology why was he ranking india to be number 1 in science and technology because that was the world's knowledge 1000 years ago somehow in the process of colonization that knowledge disappeared now let me share from a statement from his uh, book the hindus as known to all nations for many centuries are the essence of wisdom the source of fairness and objectivity they are the peoples of sublime pensiveness pensiveness universal epilogues and useful and rare inventions why is he talking about useful and rare inventions what have we done obviously our education is not teaching us that uh, globally now another important thing uh, i just want you to uh, you know know about the indian uh, culture or hindu culture he is saying that these are the people of universal epilogues now let me explain that what it means means the morality of the hindus are global in nature they do not have rules one for the hindu and second for the non hindus all rules are universal in nature and thousand years ago even the muslims recognized it and appreciated it so we will never say that okay if you are a hindu you can lie a little bit once in a while and you will still go to heaven we don't say that we say speak truth 
and it doesn't matter whether you are a hindu or what you can you know uh, you can uh, achieve moksha and so on so uh, this universal epilogues that's the beauty of that culture and uh, uh, let i'm going to come to these useful and rare inventions uh, in a minute now to give you an example of universal epilogues we talk about vasudeva kutumbakam the whole world is one family not just india is everything we say satyamev jayate so we are emphasizing on truth we are saying that sarve bhavantu sukhine all should be you know uh, happy these are the that's the mindset of the hindus that's the mindset of that culture and no wonder uh, it was a uh, ground where people from all different religions they could take refuge whether it was jewish or uh, people or muslims or christians at one time or the other they took refuge in uh, india now talking about because we are going to talk about uh, you know science so let's talk about the uh, useful and rare inventions of the hindus now the first thing is what is so special about the hindus why uh, you know they have come up with useful and rare inventions do they have two brains in place of one or what so let's analyze that and these are the hindu traditions for example questioning is a normal thing in hindu religion uh, or in hindu traditions so for example bhagavad gita is a dialogue between arjun and krishna Krishna is not telling Arjun that listen you know keep your mouth shut don't ask me these questions otherwise you will go to hell he is answering those questions that's because that's the tradition if there is a uh, difference of opinion we resolve those with shastra we don't kill each other so that's now those who are scientists or who have uh, dealt with these issues they know that once you debate that's where ideas evolve so if shastrast is the tradition of a culture ideas are going to evolve in that process now in a culture where uh, knowledge is uh, you know appreciated gurus teachers have to be you know respected and that is the case in india and the most important there was no conflict between science and religion uh you know uh 
as I have mentioned, uh, Hindu thoughts are open to questioning. It's okay. You can ask any question. No question is forbidden in uh, uh, Hindu uh, traditions. Now, uh, by the way, in Shastrat, they define rules, which are those who are, you know, uh, in management, they know that to conduct a meeting, there are rules, we call it Robert's Rules of Order. So it's Robert's Rules of Order uh, that decides how a meeting should be conducted. Now, uh, with the uh, Hindus, they define these rules thousands of years ago. If you read Charak Sahinta, which is a medical treatise, uh, these rules are defined uh, well. Now, I have talked about, uh, you know, Guru, which are, they were given more recognition than the God itself because they said it has to be the teacher who taught me to recognize God. And by the way, I'm moving a little bit fast because I have to talk about science too. So now, science and religion. There science and religion, they were never in conflict uh, in India. So no Galileo was ever imprisoned in India. No Bruno was ever killed in India. On the contrary, uh, you know, the disciplines of astronomy, mathematics, chemistry, physics, and yoga, and fine arts, these were the, you know, tools to achieve salvation. So the salvation is something, when I'm saying salvation, I think a more uh, proper word is moksha. So a person could achieve moksha through astronomy, through mathematics, through chemistry, physics, fine arts, music, and so on. So all these disciplines were bound to flourish in India, and that's what really happened. Now, to give you an idea, uh, Aryabhata wrote his book in 5th century, Aryabhatiya. In that book, he uh, explained the movements of the earth. Uh, his uh, system was heliocentric, uh, and he defined mathematics, astronomy, and so on there. And then he wrote, you know, in that whosoever knows this book, which talks about astronomy, he will achieve moksha. Means astronomy was a tool to achieve moksha. When Kannada wrote Vashishika Sutra, which is a book of, uh, you know, it's uh, physics, he said, if you can learn it, you can achieve liberation, uh, which means moksha. So all these domains of knowledge were avenues to achieve moksha. And obviously, because of that, uh, science was bound to flourish in um, Hindu culture. And that's indeed what happened. As a result of that, 
Uh, I have just mentioned a few. Zero, uh, you know, that's Indian uh, uh, invention. Now, where what is so important about zero, and I'll come to that point in a minute, but, uh, you know, when we write 11, we write it as one and one. So the one on the left has a different magnitude. It is equal to 10. Now, that invention was a monumental invention in the growth of mathematics and in turn, the growth of science. Because the uh, European Renaissance that happened when the uh, uh, mathematics of India was introduced in Europe through the Middle East. Uh, trigonometric function sign, uh, heliocentric solar system, Ujjain, by the way, that was the Greenwich of the ancient world. Uh, throughout, uh, you know, if, if the astronomy books that were written in the Middle East, uh, those books had uh, zero uh, longitude in uh, Ujjain. So that was the prominence of Ujjain in the ancient and medieval world. The concept of Adam, Kannada, uh, he defined the concept of uh, Adam. Uh, and Karl Marx, uh, a you know, famous uh, uh, philosopher, basically who started uh, communism, uh, he wrote his doctoral thesis on the uh, history of science, on Lucretius. And he has written in his book that Democritus, the person who we say gave us the concept of, uh, you know, uh, Adam, perhaps he got that knowledge from, uh, you know, from India. So he's speculating that perhaps Democritus went to India, came in contact with the uh, Indian philosophers. Uh, that's a knowledge which I'm sure the uh, left wing in India don't want to, for some reason, talk about. The raspberry iron, steel, and I will come to these points a little bit later, uh, uh, you know, um, and plastic surgery, yoga, these are some of the, uh, you know, uh, contributions of India and uh, uh, these inventions have made a significant impact on world cultures. A story which we have not shared it, uh, you know, properly uh, to the world. Now, by the why do we call zero zero? In India, it was called shunya. Shunya means nothing. When Arabs learned it, the word for nothing is sifr in uh, Arabic. So they called it sifr. That sifr, when the Europeans learned it, became cipher. Then the Italian decided that in place of C, Let's spell it with Z. And eventually, the French came up with this word, zero. So that's the history behind zero. 
a history that shows that you know uh, the contributions of different cultures uh, science by nature is multicultural uh, a and it's not just western it's a message we, we that we must share it it is important for the growth of science now this is a statement which uh, where uh, a syrian philosopher in 7th century is writing that uh, indians we should learn about them and those uh, you know who believe that because they speak greek that they have reached the limits of science should know these things and they would be convinced that there are also others means hindus who know something so that was you know uh, pope sylvester you know uh, a, a highest religious authority uh, in uh, for christianity he was instrumental in promoting uh, you know uh, hindu numerals and hindu mathematics in europe before he became pope because uh, his uh, name was gerbert before he became pope and uh, he learn mathematics hindu mathematics from muslim spain and then promoted it and then became a uh, highest authority uh, in christianity so that's how science is doesn't matter whether they are hindu muslim or uh, christians you basically accept the very best ideas fibonacci we uh we say fibonacci is the father of mathematics and he is writing in his own book that i am traveling to egypt syria greece sicily province which is france to learn hindu mathematics now the man is traveling in other countries to learn and then he wrote from there his famous book uh, you know uh, and and today when we talk about it we say he is the father of european mathematics uh, there india has a very important role to play something we don't talk about enough forget about the rest of the world we do not talk about it even in india it got to change we have to at least speak the truth but we are not at this point now if you have to say five top scientists of the islamic world the name of al khwarizmi will come he is among the top perhaps one you know depending on the person but he'll definitely be among the top 5 to share his impact he wrote his this book kitab uh, al jabr wa al muqabla this al jabr became algebra so algebra is an arabic word now let me share share something about al khwarizmi this man became famous 
because he wrote books on Indian mathematics and Indian astronomy. The very title of his books are Kitab El Isab El Hindi. El Hindi means the you know uh, mathematics of India or math mathematics of the uh, of Hind. This El Hind, that's the astronomy tables from uh, India. So this he became famous by simply documenting the uh, you know uh, the sciences of the ancient Hindus. Uh, that's a story uh, which I mean he ad he's admitting it, but it is not a common knowledge. Now, Alkindi, another top five, uh, you know, uh, scientists of the Islamic world. He wrote a book on pharmacology. About thirty-three percent of the plants and drugs that he has written in his book. Most scholars believe that they have come from India. So that was the, uh, you know, uh, situation, uh, the impact of the uh, impact of Indian or Hindu medicine in the Middle East. Uh, he also wrote a book on um, mathematics and Hindu mathematics and the title itself, it says, that this is the book of Hindu mathematics. Ibn Laban, he wrote another, you know, by the way, these are the top Islamic scientists. Uh, he wrote uh, a book, Kitab, uh, you know, Hisab al Hind. Again, he's saying it in the title uh, that the knowledge is coming from India. By the way, I have to say that all, a majority of Islamic scientists, they were very honest. They, when they borrowed some ideas from, uh, from uh, uh, Hind, they admitted it. Uh, unlike things that happened in Europe. So Islamic uh, scientists, they were very open about it. And he's starting his book that uh, in the name of Allah, the merciful and compassionate. This book is on the principle of Hindu arithmetics. So here is a Muslim. Basically uh, getting blessing of his God and writing a book on Hindu arithmetics. That shows the multicultural nature of science. Al-Baruni, you know about Mahmud Gajnavi. He was the first person who tried to invade, uh, attack India. He lost 16 times, and but he succeeded the 17th time, and that changed the um, history of uh, India. Mahmud Gajnavi, he is sponsored, it was a tradition to sponsor his scholars because their job was to write 
uh, you know, history or basically document, uh, you know, the uh, rule of uh, that kingdom. So Alberuni was that person. His job was to, you know, document. So he, he was sponsored by Mahmoud Gajnavi and look at his books. Kitab al-Hind. This is a very famous book, Al-Baruni's India, uh, you know, uh, which is where he is documenting the science of India and is a classic book even today. If you read that book, then you realize, my God, you know, how great we were thousand years ago and why we don't share that knowledge. Why don't we celebrate that? Because if we celebrate it, it is a lot easier to unite the country rather than keep complaining what we don't have. Uh, you know, like uh, I was talking about GDP. GDP happens because of the excellence in science and technology. And now we have, we are better than uh, uh, France right now. We are better than, uh, you know, the United Kingdom. That's a major celebration. Media should, uh, you know, uh, celebrate that and talk about it so that it can unite the country. But they'll be talking about some silly complaint against somebody, you know. This is, uh, uh, you know, I think a missed opportunity uh, in India. So Alberuni, uh, again, he became famous by writing about India. Now, I'm going to say something why there was a decline of GDP. And please, uh, you know, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, criticize anybody here. I'm just writing the historical fact. This is what Al-Biruni has written in his book. Mahmoud Gajanavi utterly ruined the prosperity of the country and performed their wonderful exploits by which Hindus became like atoms of dust scattered in all direction and like that, like a tale of old in the mouth of people. Their scattered remains cherish, of course, the most inveterate aversion toward all Muslims. This is the reason to why Hindu science have retired far away from those parts of the country conquered by us means basically saying Hindu science is disappearing and have fled to places which our hands cannot yet reach to Kashmir, Benares and other places. So here is a Islamic scientist who has, who was sponsored by, uh, you know, a Islamic king is writing. Now, I thought I should share this information, uh, you know, uh, with Indian media, simply because it's true. It's a historical fact. And I wrote and wrote and wrote, and I kept on getting rejection. So I thought, okay, let me try Saudi Arabia. So I contacted a magazine, Aramco Word, that is published by the royalty of Saudi Arabia because they own that uh, Aramco oil company. 
and it is the magazine of uh, Aramco Oil Company. Uh, and when I share, asked them, they said, great. And so the article was published, the Islamic Science India Connection. Uh, this is a, an article that is published in Saudi, Arab, uh, Saudi Arabian magazine. Uh, it is published in, uh, you know, in a slightly modified form uh, in uh, Oxford Encyclopedia of uh, Islamic science. But in Indian media, you can't even touch that topic. This is how, that's the, uh, you know, unfortunate reality. Uh, I do not know how many of you are, have background in science, but uh, uh, in a right angle triangle, we have sine theta, which is a uh, very uh, you know popular trigonometric uh, function. It is a divided by c means perpendicular divided by hypotenuse. In India, it was called jaya. That's the term Aryabhata used. When Arabs learned it, they decided to call it jib or jib. Now, those who are in the Hindi-speaking belt in, uh, in uh, uh, India, they know that jib has a meaning. It means pocket. We today even, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's a common word. So they use the word jib in, in the Middle East. When Europe learned this, the word for pocket in Latin is sinus. And that became sine. So every time we are saying sine theta, basically we are saying pocket theta. Doesn't make sense, but we have been doing it from the last 300 years because that's the influence of India. And it would be so wonderful if a trigonometric book is sharing this knowledge all over the world. By the way, this information you pick up any encyclopedia you pick up a dictionary this knowledge is there but you are not not many trigonometric uh, book will have this knowledge now this is what aryabhata is writing uh, as a man in a boat going forward sees a stationary object moving backward just so in sri lanka a man sees the stationary stars moving backward. So basically, he's saying that the stars are stationary and Earth is moving. Giving an example, an example which a layperson can understand. And yet, you are not going to find that statement in an astronomy book. Now, maybe somebody has played with the, you know, uh, the translation of Sanskrit language. Well, let me answer that. Al-Biruni, the person who came with Mahmud uh, Gajnavi, he criticized Indian for assigning motion to the earth in 11th century. And yet, we teach that it was Copernicus who first came up with that idea of moving earth. You are not going to find 
things about Aryabhatta. Uh, you know, that's the reality. It got to change. And I think within our lifetime, perhaps it may change. Iron pillar, to give an idea, it's rust free, and that's a big uh, you know invention of the hindus what they do is they add phosphorus and that does the trick so if you add phosphorus in iron then uh, it can weather without rusting and to give you an idea how good indians were uh, in uh, making iron and making steel plastic surgery that's another thing i mean it was a big uh, you know, news uh, in India a few years ago, uh, some politicians, and I don't want to name because I don't want to enter in politics here, they were ridiculed for saying that uh, Indians knew about, uh, or ancient Hindus knew about plastic surgery, uh, you know, and the academia totally failed in its responsibility. They were quiet. The truth is, we knew about plastic surgery during the BC period. Now, some of you may be wondering, plastic came only in the last 100 years. How come we have plastic surgery, uh, you know, uh, uh, 2000 years ago? Well, the term plastic here has come from rhinoplasty. That's a Latin term. That means shaping of nose. And I will share with you. So here is a situation where a person on the left, uh, has lost his nose and so they cut the skin of the forehead and from there uh, you know made the artificial nose this was the technique that was used uh, you know in india uh, you know to repair nose and to repair ear lobes this is provided to us by uh, shushruta and I will not go through that because, uh, you know, time limitation. But uh, Indians became so skillful in uh, repairing nose, ears, and lips that Westerners started believing that people use Tilak or Bindi because they want to hide, conceal their scars left by plastic surgery. Now, the very first case, uh, you know, of plastic surgery was published, uh, you know, when Tipu Sultan, he caught five bullock drivers who were helping the British and he decided to cut their nose and one hand. And one of the persons, uh, he repaired his nose and it took 25 days. And when British realized it, they decided to write about it in the newspaper, which published on August 5, 1794 in, uh, you know, these two newspapers. These are by the way, both Indian newspapers. I wish if I can have a copy of those. So if anybody here from the viewers can get me those articles, I would really appreciate it because I cannot get those in uh, in America. Now, in London, they 
In the same year, they published an article on plastic surgery. And by the way, this is the portrait of that person who repaired his nose. And as you can see, this is the repaired nose. It is available on a copper sheet. It is available in the British Museum even today. So in Gentleman's Magazine in 1794, it was uh, you know, published that Indians can repair nose and ear lobes, a knowledge that Europeans you know, uh, did not have. In fact, the very first book on plastic surgery was published in 1816 by uh, J.C. Carpio. He was a uh, surgeon in, uh, uh, from London. And he wrote this book in 1816, and this is what he's writing. That the Indians, they have this knowledge from time immemorial. He's not saying that this is a new knowledge. He's saying it, Indians have that. In the very first book on plastic surgery, Britishers are writing that in India, this knowledge has been there forever. Another interesting feat, uh, you know, statement from the same uh, uh, writer that this surgery was done by people who make parts means it was performed by people of today term, you know, we can use scheduled caste. That knowledge was so common that people, we call it scheduled caste, you know, today they were the one who were performing this surgery. That tells you. And yet, these are, you know, books published in, the, in India, published in uh, Europe, and yet there is a big uproar about it in Indian uh, media, and academia did not play its role to resolve this matter. It's, I think, uh, unfortunate. Because how good is academia if it is not solving nationals and social problems? That's our role. Uh, we have to do it. Yoga, again, is a uh, oldest system of personal development, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, universally adopted all over the world. And the most important thing there is the role of mind in the welfare of body. This is what, you know, yoga is teaching us. So thinking positive, it is a human necessity, by the way, because that's the only way you can go to be healthy. Complaining all day long, which is becoming an Indian trait these days, that's not good for you. So become, you know, the role of mind in the welfare of body, Hindus realized it thousands of years ago. And that's what, uh, you know, uh, taught in Ayurveda. Chess was invented by the Hindus. Uh, and uh, it can be documented very clearly. In fact, I have written an article about it, uh, you know, the, the providing uh, documents, um, you know, proving that chess was invented by the Hindus. In fact, the book I talked about, uh, Science in the Medieval World, which was written by Syed al-Andalusi, uh, he has written that chess was 
uh, you know, uh, Indian uh, Hindu invention. Carl Jung, he was greatly influenced by Patanjali and he has written, uh, you know, um, you know, what India can teach us. His, his impact on psychology uh, is tremendous and things that he has written has serious Indian uh, influence. Uh, so that's Carl Jung, who studied, uh, uh, you know, Hindu uh, science and Hindu literature. Oppenheimer, we are talking about the father of Adam Bomb. He was so greatly influenced with Bhagavad Gita, Vedas and Upanishads that he decided to learn Sanskrit language. How many scientists in India are learning Sanskrit language? He mastered it. And in a letter to his brother, he's saying that I have read Bhagavad Gita twice and it's not enough. That's the impact of Hindu literature on Western scientists. Uh, when he, he was the director of the Manhattan Project, and that was the time when President Roosevelt died. And in his condolence message, he talked about Bhagavad Gita. That's the impact of uh, uh, Bhagavad Gita or Hindu literature for Oppenheimer. Now, I'm pretty sure some of you who have any some background in uh, physics they may be aware, Nobel laureate Schrodinger. He is the one who gave the wave picture, means you can represent a particle with a wave. Uh, you know, uh, uh, he got Nobel Prize for that. He was a Nobel laureate. He studied Upanishads, Vedas, Bhagavad Gita in great detail and he has even written about it in his uh, book my view of the world and he's talking about tatvam uh, asi that is you uh, or a human being who is localized and yet he is pervaded in uh, you know everywhere in space the concept of uh, you know that uh, you know, he's admitting that was invented by the Indians. So basically, he's one way saying, because that's his, uh, you know, wave mechanics, that his scientific ideas have their origin in Hindu literature. I would love to see that knowledge, uh, you know, documented in a quantum mechanics books. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not the case. Again, he's talking about Schrodinger, that, you know, ancient wisdom of the Upanishads. Uh, he was very open about it. He was not hiding, uh, which I see a trend in, uh, in uh, you know, India, where they, they are uh, scared to talk about their belief system, but these people, they openly talk about it. Emerson, by the way, when we talk about uh, uh, American uh, philosophers, uh, 
Emerson is perhaps ranked number one. And see what he's writing. He is writing, I think Hindu books are the best gymnastics for the mind. That's what he's writing about. Now, he also read Bhagavad Gita and popularized it. Uh, and his copy of personal copy of Bhagavad Gita was in a bad shape because it was used so extensively. And uh, he has written about Katha Upanishads, he has written about Vishnu Purana, he has written about Bhagavad Gita, and so on. And that's a knowledge, uh, you know, we are talking about of the last 200 years uh, and well documented, yet not very popular. Same thing with uh, Thoreau. The uh, uh, another American, uh, you know, uh, philosopher. He's saying, whenever I have read any part of the Vedas, I have felt that some unearthly and unknown light illuminated me. This was the feeling of a top philosopher in America 200 years ago. Uh, unfortunately, you know, not many people know about it. And by the way, all these things that I'm talking about, uh, with proper citation, they are provided uh, in my book, uh, Ancient Hindu Science. Then he's writing, in the morning I bathe my intellect, uh, you know, in Bhagavad Gita. So these are the people, uh, you know, who talked about Ganges River, who talked about Bhagavad Gita, and these were the top philosophers of America. They've talked about Brahma, they talked about Indra, Vishnu, and so on. This is a knowledge that is not shared with, uh, you know, people in uh, India as yet, or for that matter, globally. So basically, I'm going to stop it at this point. Uh, I want to sh uh, share with you that science does not belong to one culture or one gender. It belongs to all who want to unfold the mysteries of nature. And multiculturalism is not because of the uh, you know, political agenda. It is because it's, a, it's the true nature of science. Uh, so I would be happy to answer any question that you may have. Um, you yes. mentioned quite a few well-known figures. I have heard about them and I've also seen their quotes talking about our texts and our knowledge systems. Um, my question is, they, these people were so famous, so many of them who have learned from our texts. How come it is not known in other countries? I mean, we know the politics of our country. <laughs> I'm wondering how it wasn't known in their countries. What happened there? If you could enlighten us about that, thank you. Oh, I would be happy to, uh, you know, and, and it's very easy to explain. Uh, you know that uh, we were colonized. It was not a coincidence. 
we were colonized because not only they dominated us physically, they dominated our thinking also. So massive literature was produced to basically show us that we have no tradition. We have, in fact, the, the uh, Macaulay famous statement that, uh, you know, uh, all uh, Hindu literature or Indian literature uh, will not occupy even one shelf of a library, you know, something like that. Uh, that was the mindset. So they basically, uh, you know, created a situation where we did not know about our own, uh, you know, traditions, about our own culture, because then it became a lot easier for them to colonize us. Uh, and by the way, it is not my, uh, uh, you know, opinion. It is a well-established fact in the history of science where that science is Eurocentric, means the books that we are writing favor Europeans. Uh, I mean, just pick up any book. Uh, you are not going to find, uh, you know, uh, many contributions from uh, Russia or China. Why? Russia is a superpower, so they must be good in something, you know, uh, with a, such a small population, but you are not going to find that. So it is a very well accepted fact that, uh, you know, uh, science that we share is Eurocentric. And... Think about it, the, the Greece that we are talking about is like a tiny island. And yet, when you read history of science book, most great ideas came from Greece. Does it make sense? Uh, by the way, uh, uh, I know, uh, because I have studied this, I know that the size of Greece today is equal to the size of Florida. So to say that all the knowledge that we need to know in science has come from Florida. If I say that, people will laugh about you that. Yet we have been teaching that for the last five, 500 years and nobody can, uh, nobody's raising any issue on that. Uh, and if that's the case, then how come India had one third of the GDP? Because to have that GDP, we have to be good in science and technology. So it's basically, you know, uh, a well-accepted fact that, uh, you know, it's a Eurocentric and, uh, you know, uh, we got to change it and it will change. Um, I guess my, I'm aware of Eurocentrism. I'm a social sciences student myself, and I see only Eurocentrism there. <laughs> Head to toe, psychology is all Eurocentric, social sciences entirely. Um, and I'm also aware of Macaulay's famous minute. I guess my question was more um, not about the Indian context, but about all these people who are in the West, so in uh, the US, in other countries. They had such clout and power because of the different areas in which they were so accomplished, you know, whether that's science or philosophy, all these different people's names, you took Schrodinger to Thoreau to everyone. So there must have been um, their academic circles and through word of mouth. These people were openly reading our texts, appreciating it. How did it not come to be? I understand the politics was to crush us 
And I understand that in India, they made us feel inferior and they tried to make us feel like we had nothing and we, there was only European knowledge. But what happened in Europe and in the US? How come it did not, I mean, how did it get completely covered up there okay. too with so many people from there talking about it? Okay, okay. Now, uh, I'm sure you know that uh, the uh, British monarchy uh, before um, uh, Indian independence is there. It Have they changed? Have they changed their policies? Answer is no. They were Eurocentric yesterday. They are Eurocentric today. And if they can control us, they will love to control us today. Now, you are saying it by the, uh, then how come people like Emerson and Schrodinger and, you know, uh, uh, Oppenheimer, uh, why they, be, uh, you know, learn about it? Let me share by the, it's a, uh, not a very well-known fact, but since you are asking me, so let me drift a little bit. Dara Shikoho, the elder brother of Aurangzeb, he was the one who translated uh, some Upanishads and some Hindu books into, uh, you know, uh, Persian. Those books were translated later on in Latin. And it was those Latin books that came, uh, you know, to people like, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Goethe uh, and so on. So the European scholar learned it because of the effort of uh, Darashiko. In fact, he did so much good to, uh, you know, the popularity of uh, Hindu religion uh because of his uh, translation so scholars people like uh, uh, oppenheimer people like schrodinger these people were interested in hindu literature or hindu books not to achieve moksha they didn't even care they were interested in these books because they wanted to become better scientists so they were looking the validity of their ideas in Hindu literature. In fact, uh, Carl Jung, uh, uh, since you mentioned, you know, psychology, he has openly admitted about that, uh, that he's uh, interested in Hindu literature because he's looking for the uh, validity of his ideas in that li literature. Same thing with uh, Schrodinger. So these people were looking for ideas and investigating. In fact, uh, I have lived in Germany, even today, uh, you know, cities like uh, Heidelberg and so on, you know, these people are studying uh, Hindu literature in great depth, even today. Uh, and, and not to, uh, you know, uh, basically learn about ancient India, but to come up with some new, better ideas for humanity in the future. My question is that, yeah, okay, you mentioned about Macaulay's effect. 
I I think it is time that uh, what needs to be done to reverse it. Do you have some ideas how to do that? Oh, uh, I think uh, people are aware of it. If I mean, for any scientific research, uh, you have to have uh, resources. See, China, China poured billions of dollars to define their history of science. That was the role of Joseph Needham in Cambridge. That's what he did. And China gave billions of dollars. Saudi Arabia poured billions of dollars to define Islamic sciences. So there are plenty of books on Islamic sciences all over the world. How much money have we spent in India? Not much. You can't even think of uh, uh, you know, uh, spending billions or forget about billions, even the uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. No. So first thing is, how do you unite scholars if you don't support them? So that is the uh, step number one. You have to allow, okay, how many places in India today, we are teaching a course on ancient Indian science. It's our own heritage. And we don't want to teach that heritage. I think that's a mistake. And when I'm saying mistake, I'm very kind to those people. The proper word that is coming to my mind, perhaps I can't say that. So that's the problem. We have not provided resources, we have not provided guidance, and people are scared because they will be labeled, uh, you know, uh, uh, and uh, now you can say, you know, in my case, I mean, I have sacrificed a lot uh, because I decided to work in this field. But fortunately, I realized I have one life to live and so I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And fortunately, uh, it paid off eventually, but in the early stages of my career, I suffered a lot. I mean, today uh, I'm a distinguished teaching professor, which is, uh, uh, you know, we are talking of the top two or three percent. That's it, you know. Uh, so I have done reasonably well. But when I was starting my career, uh, you know, I had to uh, forget about it because I had to establish myself as an atomic physicist so that I could get a job. Uh, so those were the, those are the issues. So if we can provide resources, if we can unite scholars, where two scholars can sit together and talk with each other, ideas are going to evolve, knowledge is going to evolve, and we will be teaching different uh, history of science. Uh, you know, in the coming years. I have no doubt about it. It's going to happen. Uh, and, uh, you know, the private funding is another uh, issue, you know. I mean, people, they give lots of money to, uh, you know, uh, temples and mosques and so on. I think some should pay little money to scholars too. Uh, so the mindset of the culture, the mindset of that society also, has to change a little bit. And if that happens, because the documents are there, it's just that we have not investigated those. 
you know, in, with, uh, in modern perspective. That's where the flaw is. Uh, and, uh, and I think it can be changed in, in maybe just 15, 20 years. Uh, that's my feeling, you know, and the interest is there because I, I, I have written these books and the number of emails I get, it is so large uh, from all over the world. People are re reading it, uh, you know, they are contacting me. So the interest is there. Resources are not at this stage. Uh, first question, uh, what is the course you would suggest? uh that would be most appropriate what is the single or the number of courses you would suggest that we must introduce in our uh, universities number one first question second question you generally would know the indian and ecosystem of education who would be the most appropriate to address this issue and take it forward and number three the in the government, whom should one contact in India to push this forward? You know, you have asked me three questions. One, you know, once we can educate an average Indian about their heritage, rest is easy. So if we have one or two courses, that's, that's enough. Because once the interest is generated, then uh, other courses will follow. So right now, at this stage, one or two courses is uh, good enough, you know. Now, who should be the right person? I do not know. By the way, I've been away from uh, Indian higher education for, uh, you know, about 50 years. So, or 45 years. So I... I mean, India has changed a lot in last 45 years. So I do not know, but uh, definitely, you know, Ministry of Education. And uh, I'm pretty sure they are aware of my book because uh, I have seen their website and my book is uh, listed there uh, from the Ministry of Education. So somebody <laughs> in that ministry is aware of my book, you know. Uh, and uh, the issue is, can they push for it? Can they promote it? Uh, can they publicize it? By the way, I thought, uh, and this is a true confession and perhaps my failure, uh, that when I wrote this book, I thought I'm going to get so many interviews from India because I'm talking about Indian heritage uh, and talking about, uh, uh, you know, the very first book, Science in the Medieval World, which is based on this 11th century document, which says India is number one country in the world. Do you know that this book is very is reasonably popular around the world and not a single copy in India? There is not one library in India that has a copy of that book. And the book was published 30 years ago. And you go to Berlin or Frankfurt or Paris or London or Sydney or New York or anywhere, you will have a copy of that book, but not in India. This is where we are today in India. It got to change. 
because just think about a child being raised in India is help. And if that child is aware that we were number one, that child will have a desire. Okay, if we were number one, we can be number one again. So let me work on it. But we never share that information. So basically, we are missing a tremendous opportunity to unite the country. And it's sad. That's all I would say, you know. We can easily, uh, you know, change the mindset in our country by uh, speaking the truth. Another thing that is uh, commonly criticized in India, oh, is basically pushing Hindu agenda. I don't care whether it's a Christian agenda or Islamic agenda or Hindu agenda. All I care for is, is it true? There is very little discussion on that, that is it true or not? And I think we should follow the truth. That's the secret of success uh, for any civilization, for any country. And, uh, you know, uh, that's, that mindset got to change. Would you think this problem can be addressed by having uh, like-minded people like you meeting at the table to discuss the way forward uh, and uh, like-minded people around the world to take uh, measures for the way forward and to suggest to the uh, people in, in power to do something because now is the ideal time to do it. Yes. In fact, we, it's a necessity. We have to, uh, or, you know, this knowledge is going to disappear. By the way, uh, I have a, I'm deeply involved in another project and that is documenting, digitizing Indian knowledge. The archaeological sites we have in India, nobody has digitized those. Now, that's where, by the way, I received $100,000 from the American government to go and in India to document, uh, you know, uh, and to produce a few uh, documentary uh, films. And I have done that. But that's where I talk about resources. Once the money was gone, I can go to India and make those movies. Uh, because uh, those who have made movies, they know how expensive is editing is. It's, uh, you know, uh, it's very expensive uh, to create a quality product uh, that, uh, you know, will be appreciated by uh, uh, TV industry. Uh, for that, you have to have a good editor. And... Uh, and that costs money. Then somebody like me has to fly to India and stay in hotels. I, 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 you know, stay in New Delhi and I know how much I have to pay <laughs> every time I visit, you know, New Delhi in uh, staying in Clary's hotel or in some other hotel. Uh, you know, so resources are very much, very important 